Now, why is it that there's such a shortage of existing houses on the market? And there is a shortage of existing houses on the market. Oh, can I answer? Can I answer? People don't want to sell their house and have a higher interest rate on the new house. The people who own a house and they have a 2% or a a 2 point something percent mortgage on their house have no desire whatsoever to sell the house for a whole bunch of money and then go get a mortgage for 7%. It's just, no. I'm not going to do that. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning and welcome back to another exciting second hour of the Personal Wealth Coach, where I make the boring sound exciting. <laughs> Oh, no, this is the personal wealth coach with uh, Jake and, and Jeff McClure. And sometimes we know how to say our names. And sometimes we don't. Yes, it takes a great deal of coordination with practice over yes. many, many years to say our names consistently correctly. I'm not sure that we're there yet, but we will be at some point. We will be able to say our names. Well. I have a subject. A subject. Yes, that I would like is to talk a, about. Is it a direct object? Uh, do, do we have prepositional phrases around it? Any good well, adjectives? A is an indefinite, so it's just, or an. Okay. Anyway. Okay, all right. So, so go ahead. Grammatically correct, I'm sure. The uh, A number that only economic geeks like us really pay a lot of attention to, the PCE came in this week for last month. Personal and consumptions expenditures. Yes, and... In there is a report on the PCE inflation, uh, which is very different from the PMI. And everything starts with the P, but it's kind of interesting. PMI, by the way, for the United States is up significantly, and that's the purchasing manager's indicators. It's at, it was, it's at uh, 54. Anything above 50 is growth. Anything below 50 is contraction, which basically the people who are buying stuff for companies to put together and sell later have been told, go buy more stuff. Lots more stuff. Uh, that's the PCI. But the PCE P- came the, in. The now, PMI, yeah. Go ahead. The PCE came in, and it has been it has been stuck. The core, super core PCE is what it's called. That takes out the volatile elements. It takes out the things that are like real estate, the rents, and so on that are sticky. In other words, they take a long time to change. I like how economists give their very boring acronyms, superhero names, like mm-hmm. super core. PMI, PCE. <laughs> yeah, there's so a lot of evil laughing. The, the important thing to note that, that, is that the PCE deflator, which is the thing that we're talking about, the, that the Federal Reserve watches very carefully, has been running between 4.6 and 4.7%. And its month-to-month rate seems to be stuck there, too. And what does that mean? In reality, it's a simple thing. Inflation caused higher short-term interest rates because... A, the market would do it anyway, but the Federal Reserve is giving it some kick to make it happen more so. What we're seeing in the longer-term maturities is a creeping rise in rates, and it's looking more and more sticky. And what does that mean to you? That means, frankly, from my perspective, I don't think we're going to see long-term interest rates come back down to where they were in the last decade. They're going to rise and they're going to stay up for a long time because the elements that generated the extremely low inflation over the last 10 to 20 years 
have largely disappeared and and are single yeah actively being reduced so well, the issue is can we we throw in what those things part of the things the, the major thing that has kept inflation so tame for two decades is the globalization of our workforce so uh if we i mean if you just look at the price of a television uh, or a tire for 20 years it was flat if i mean the easiest place to look was the mcdonald's dollar menu it didn't Did you say a tire yeah tire inflation deflation that's where and you it was check. flat yeah you check for for inflation and right. deflation got in it. tires that's this is got my I, that's I my that. preferred yeah. inflation indicator by the way okay by the because, way because because just you know on the other end of that you've got on the economic side, the, this other thing, when you replace the tires, that's retiring. So right. it's just yes. the per- it's better than widgets for explaining Got the it. economy. Anyway, so tires. go ahead with your subject. I'm sorry for <laughs> taking you on that rabbit trail. I'm not sure I can but remember But I heard you say something about a tire being flat for two decades. Right. Go ahead. So inflation has been level. It's been flat. The tire hasn't been inflated or deflated. <laughs> yes. The uh, attire, and, meaning clothing, the price of clothing, attire has right. been flat to down for two decades, which means no, a tire has been flat for 20 years. There, there are exceptions to that. College costs have gone up at between 5 and 7% during that 20-year period. Uh, medical costs have gone up between 6 and 8% during that time period when inflation has been flat. So if you felt like college is more expensive and that medical care is more expensive, you're absolutely correct. The rest, and there's been studies on it and all that good stuff. Why did we have such tame inflation for so long? Well, it's because you could send it to somebody else who could get paid a lot less to do it. If somebody came in competition with your product, you couldn't really raise the price or somebody else would make the same product for less by going to China or somewhere else. So we may be seeing another wave of that in five to 10 years as automation takes over plants. But for right now, automation is quite expensive to get installed. So we're not seeing products go cheaper, just like at the beginning of the globalization wave where we were sending manufacturing to other countries. It was expensive at the beginning because we had to build absolutely new factories in a foreign land. And then we had to figure out how to ship the stuff back to the States. But the idea was if you did it enough, it'd get cheaper. And people did it enough, so it got cheaper. And that was a constant counterweight against any inflationary tendencies that we had. If you raised your hourly rate for your workers in a factory in the United States... You would then say, okay, I'm going to charge a higher price because I've got the best workers in the world. But they would just send it to China to get made. It may not be the same quality. It rarely was the same quality. But it was being made for cheaper. And people like to buy things that are cheaper, I've noticed. So that kept well, inflation me, low. Let me point out something. Make this very practical. If 20 years ago you bought a large flat screen TV to put on your wall, you probably would need to have a second mortgage on your house to buy it. Well, let's go back to the analogy we were. If you, if 20 years ago you bought a large snow tire to put on your wall, I'm sorry. No, go. Let's the, the television works better anyway, than the tire in this. So and, go ahead. And you, we all remember when they were many thousands of dollars. Matter of fact, when they 4D or whatever it was finally first came out, whatever Four, that meant. 4K. Four, well, whatever. Yeah, 4D Four is something. a physics term. But yeah. Yes. But anyway, I looked at the price of that thing and said, boy, it'd be nice to have one of those, but I don't want to. No, that's too expensive. Second mortgage, here I come. 
And now it's down to a tenth of what it originally was. That is because of two things, automation and China, because the flat screen TV that you look at today will almost certainly be made in China. Now, here's the problem. The Chinese at that point were being paid very little money. They were coming out of the, the, the farm and going to work in factories and uh, getting paid very little. Their standard of living was relatively low. It's now high. Companies are backing out of China and because China is no longer a trustworthy trade partner. And so they have to go someplace else where labor is more expensive. And it's more expensive in China. So the cause of the sudden deflationary or disinflationary, depending on how you approach it, pressure has gone away. So we get back to the point where wherever somebody is making flat screen TVs, which may or may not be China, we can't find a place where we can go where they'll make them a lot cheaper. So as quality improves, something called greedflation gets in there, which is already happening. Corporate margins in the United States are as high as they've ever been since the 1950s and 60s. They what were, does that mean? They were able the to charge between, more for because of <laughs> inflation. So they did. Earning, that's one of the reasons the stock market has done so well in this supposedly bad economic environment is because earnings continue to be high. Why are earnings continually higher? Uh, company after company is reporting that they're seeing lower volumes, uh, they're seeing less revenue, but they have higher earnings. That's because they can price their products upward. There's room to price them because nobody, can, their competitors can't take off and run to an undeveloped country and make it a lot cheaper and ship it here and be in competition with them. So what does that mean to you in reality? It means that longer term interest rates will be higher for a long time. It means that if you hold a long term bond portfolio, the price has dropped quite a lot in the last year. And it's probably likely to do a lot more dropping and not recover until the bonds mature. No, um, no, I want to add and, a piece to that. Looking five to 10 years out, we can easily see how this goes back to a more benign interest rate because automation technology is going to increase dramatically because so many factories right now are being built from scratch. Yep. And as they do that, the technology to automate those factories is having a lot of money spent on it. And there's a great demand for it. So there's a lot of competition to get the automation. The companies that are out there trying to build the robots and the drones to make it more efficient to manufacture, they're very expensive at the very newest model. But over time, I, uh, that price goes down because we're spending so much money on it. I recently talked to people who have toured both the Tesla plant in Austin and Dell's new plant in the Austin area. And I said, what did you see that was most remarkable about those plants? And they said the lack of people. It's They're almost entirely robotic. There's people who are supervising and monitoring the robots. But he said in the Dell plant, the parts that they use to assemble a computer come in in a truck and a robot forklift goes out and picks up the boxes and reads the barcode on the boxes and takes them to the right place. There where another robot opens the boxes and pulls the pieces out and it just goes through this system. And what comes out on the other end is a, uh, a computer and practically no humans have touched it along the way. And so that is the future. And that's yeah. that will lower costs again. And right now, but meanwhile, it, back at the ranch, initialization of that at the very beginning of it, it's more expensive. It always is, but it's a need. The, the people that are automating their plants are reacting to a catastrophe 
in the supply chain, something that we never expected to happen, just ripped that network apart. And it stayed ripped up for a significant period of time, like 18 months where the supply chain couldn't be trusted to work for any product unless it was w- one mile away from manufacturing. Uh, it is phenomenal that the supply chain has been repaired as thoroughly as it has been, but there's a lot more redundancy in it and a lot more of nearshoring and bringing back the onshoring of our own manufacturing. The United States is now the is it's coming up on becoming the number one manufacturer of computer chips. And why do I say the United States? We still have Taiwanese companies doing a big amount and Chinese companies doing a big amount. Well, because the Taiwanese companies are building manufacturing facilities in the United States. So now it's the United States making it. And when you think about all the other companies that are bringing manufacturing back here, this is why we're seeing manufacturing in the United States growing at a time when everybody's expecting a recession. So it's really, 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 we, we have this f- very nice bit of optimistic uh, projections when we look ahead at where we are in automation and where we are in growth-oriented changes in the economy. We're on the cusp of changes in how energy is made in a lot of areas, a lot of areas. The nuclear uh, research is getting phenomenally advanced compared to what it was even 10 years ago in safety and in uh, its ability to create energy. Uh, I have a story to say on that one here. The uh, Japanese companies are investing in uh, a British core power with the company uh, floating nuclear power. It's in essence, it's a ship that only exists to create nuclear power, and it has never got a lack of coolant. <laughs> and you think, well, that's dangerous because uh, the nuclear stuff is out at the ocean, and if, if you have some kind of a failure, the levels of security on that thing, the layers of new technology to prevent meltdowns are fine. Oh, man, they're orders of magnitude better than what we had 20 years ago, but they're still dangerous. So people still look at that and say, oh, well, fusion is coming. Prototypes already exist in multiple sources that have produced more power than it took to start up. What does that mean? It was able to create more power than the energy just to make it run. That means that it's energy productive positive. We've got renewable resource technology is coming up at high speed Fracking technology is having another wave of innovations on it. That's purely chemical-based, where the rest of what we're talking about is mostly physics and, uh, and safety measures, new, new materials and so on. So all of that says that in the future, power will be a lot cheaper. Uh, when we're looking at automation, same stuff. In the future, almost everything that we use will be less expensive. Uh, And we had a trend of that for a long time in manufacturing for cars. If you bought a car over a 20-year period, not that long ago, this this last 20-year period, most of the time the car you were getting 
had significant upgrades from any car made 10 years before, from the way the windows work to the, the, the airbags. And that didn't contribute to a massive rise in the price of vehicles. Uh, why? Well, because we were finding new and better ways to manufacture. Now we've hit this inflection point where Tesla's come out with a completely new way of making cars, as automated as possible. And other people are following. There's an, another time when we had a massive innovation like this, and it wasn't greatly long ago. Uh, and seeing as the studio is based in Temple, this is a great example. Uh, Drayton McLean, McLean Enterprises, which is a logistic company, um, it developed a technology that is ubiquitous today. Uh, and that's a database-driven barcode technology so that when you're buying groceries and they scan the laser on the barcode, the software in the system knows that a sale has occurred and can put its tally up for the next order of that item. Walmart wound up buying McLean's and then eventually selling it to Warren Buffett. So that innovation of how we trimmed back on warehouse space, because you didn't need to just in case have 30 tubes of toothpaste in the back if you knew that hey we have five extra in the back and we're ordering more as it's being sold so you didn't waste money on inventory that you weren't going to use for a while weren't going to sell sell for a while there was a tremendous innovation and in the way everybody did business it led to this kind of on the on-time ordering system the supply chain melted down in the pandemic which caused us to reevaluate the whole thing. How do we do an on-time ordering system just in time when we're separated by the largest ocean on the planet from the manufacturer and nobody's in control of who, which country closes what border at what time? So bringing that manufacturing back increases cost for a while, but then significantly decreases cost. If we replace the labor in a Chinese plant, with automation in the United States, that initial purchase of the automation is expensive, but the end result is an even cheaper product. It doesn't have to be shipped for six weeks uh, on, a, on a ship that the company doesn't own. You have some other things that you wanted to talk about, though. I've just kind of covered a lot of the things that we're optimistic about. Well, it's, I'm, I'm also optimistic. Uh, new home sales exceeded expectations in April, which is interesting. Um, new home sales went from um, 656,000 to 683,000 oh, for the last month in April. Now, why is that important? Typically, when we see mortgage rates rise as much as they have risen in the last year, new home sales just dry up. It, they fall dramatically, and instead, they rose. Well, they rose that, recently. We we had yeah, we had a drop so over the last year. We had a drop. Generally speaking, when interest rates go up and stay up as they have, and we've also you, you see the drop continuing. And the other thing is, we're seeing reports all over that lending criteria is tightening. Yep. across the board. So it's it's harder to get a loan. The loan is more expensive. So of course, people are making more loans. They're they're, they're borrowing more money to buy houses. Wow. And what changed? And this is, the, I dug into this because I thought it was fascinating. Two things that that tells us. The first thing it says is there's a lot of people out there with sufficient down payment and sufficient credit to buy the more expensive new houses, and they are doing so. That is a real positive going future, going forward. Now, why is it that 
there's such a shortage of existing houses on the market, and there is a shortage of existing houses on the market. Oh, can I answer? Can I answer? Go people ahead. don't want to sell their house and have a higher interest rate yeah. on the new house. The people who own a house and they have a two percent or a two point something percent mortgage on their house have no desire whatsoever to sell the house for a whole bunch of money and then go get a mortgage for seven percent. It's just no, I'm not going to do that. Uh, the other thing that's causing this to happen, I actually ran into that uh, talking to some people recently. A member of our family sold his uh, house in Austin a few years ago. Uh, when, when did he move to, to North Carolina? How long uh, ago was that? Three years four, ago? Uh, uh, two years ago. So it okay, was two years ago. Pandemic move. And, and the small house that he had in North Austin, which was a 1940s house that had been renovated, what he got for that enabled him to buy a much larger house in North Carolina. Well, I just talked to some people who just came back from North Carolina and were looking at the price of houses there. And they said the house prices in that area have doubled and tripled in the last two years. That, that goes to so, something we talked about last week about the the way that inflation migrates and how people with high paying jobs working remotely now in a place that has lower paying jobs around it starts raising the wages of the people around them because they're spending more there causes some regional inflation. And that's happening so in North Carolina. This is one of those issues that in my 40 years of watching this professionally and 10 years before that as a investor, I've never seen before. We're seeing Normally, you say if if mortgage interest rates rise dramatically, they double or triple over a twelve month period. The that's when we'd get the housing bus and the builders going bankrupt and uh, everything falling apart as far as the eye can see in the, in the real estate industry. Instead, what we see is the builders hiring more people and building more houses. This is an this is one of the things that's pretty fascinating, and which is why I look at the the traditional indicators of when we're going to have a recession and say they're no longer accurate. One of the Indicators is, by the way, higher mortgage rates indicates a recession is coming. Well, in this case, higher mortgage rates are causing more people to buy new houses, right? And to which kinda, is mind-boggling. To tie that in, when when I bought my first house, I was ex- extremely pleased to get a seven and a half percent interest rate on it. And then the next house I got, I was even more ecstatic to get a six percent mortgage. I'm I've now got a three percent mortgage, but interest rates are where they've been in my lifetime and they didn't feel constricting. And this is where the Federal Reserve has a term, academics have a term, a neutral rate. It means it's not stimulative and it's not contractatory. How's that for a fun word? Uh, It isn't stimulating growth, nor is it creating contractions. That's like the the target zone in a inflationary period. If inflation keeps going, they've got to go into contraction mode and ramp back on the ability to grow. This is the the fear that we're going to have a recession because interest rates are up. So kind of wrapping that around, <laughs> the, the concept of, uh, like we compare the housing market, um, we're, we have more houses being built now. Why? This is a big question. Why? Why are interest rates high and yet people are buying houses again? What's going on there? Well, we don't have enough houses. During the global financial crisis, the, the Great Recession, 
the cause of that was overbuilding of houses. Now, you can say something else caused the overbuilding of houses. There's not really one cause of this. But we made a lot of houses that people weren't living in. There were whole communities being built in Florida that didn't have anybody that wanted to live in them. And that caused problems because eventually when people stopped buying them for more than they were worth just because, a lot of houses became worth less than what was owed on them. And the foreclosures were taking off. So a lot of builders went out of business and then we didn't build much in the way of houses for about 15 years. That means we've now caught up with the excess inventory and we've exceeded it. We have people that wish to own houses that have been saving for half a decade to own a house and they are looking to buy a house and they got put on hold because interest rates started up and they said, well, we're going to have to save a lot more than we expected. But they're still coming out to buy now because there's not enough houses which means that we do expect house prices to continue to decline for the next 12 months or so, but not like a bubble popping because there's still too many people that want to buy and not enough houses on the market. Now, you might have individualized little frothy bubbles popping in places where there's a lot more building going on than there's a demand for that the housing, but that happens every time. So you might see people just betting on the wrong location. How could we be wrong if everyone's building here? Well, that's why you're wrong. Um, That's because everybody's building there. That's how it could be wrong. Uh, It's That's a self-fulfilling prophecy or reverse prophecy. Um, All right, so I jumped in there in the middle of this and I've been rambling on. I'm waiting for you to... Do do you have more to say on this? Mm, Well... The, the the important thing I have to say is that the forecasts of a recession are, in my opinion, nothing to be concerned about. And the reason I say that, we are at such a high point in the economy that it's just astonishing. Um, the The number of people employed, the number, the percentage of people unemployed, the number of people who are filing for new claims all say the economy is running hot. Which means, by the way, the Federal Reserve may pause this this coming month in their interest rate hikes, but I kind of suspect they're going to go up further because they're not slowing things down very much. What we're seeing is reduced growth. And it, it's it, guessing at interest rates is kind of a hard thing to do. But one of the things we're seeing is I think interest rates are going to, the short-term interest rates certainly won't stay at as high as they are right now, 5.25, but they have probably come down only to in the four ranges. Longer term interest rates then will go up and that's where we'll get the positive yield curve back. And and if you don't, if that's unimportant to you, then that's unimportant to you. But the issue is to be aware of what happens when interest rates rise in a secular fashion, which is what they're doing, and stay high for a long time. When you look at your portfolio, when you look at where you have your money, when you look at what you're planning, are, I have still encountered a few people who are waiting for mortgage rates to come back down to 2% before they buy a house. I think they're running out of hope at this point, but I don't think it's ever going to happen. We've seen a once-in-a-lifetime event. It's not normal, and we have a huge amount of demand in the, in the society. By the way, 
Moody's is saying that the excess savings, now what's excess savings? That's uh, the money that people, when you, when you look at 2019 and you see the percentage of their income or net worth that people held as savings, cash savings. And you looked at what happened during the pandemic when people were socking away money and savings, and it went up a lot. Well, about 40% of that, quote, excess savings, end quote, has been spent, which indicates that by definition, 60% of it is still there. Now, it's going to take a little while for the consumer to get back to a comfort level with the economy that will enable them to draw their savings down a lot. But there's still a tremendous amount of money sitting in savings accounts across the United States or in money market funds across the United States that is going to get spent at some point. The, and as I said last hour when I was talking about where the markets are, you combine that with the rather substantial quantities of money that were moved out of equities and are parked waiting to get back in and the short interest, the number of short sales that are out there that will have to be covered. And when they cover it, uh, they'll have to buy stocks. And Man, I look uh, a year from now, I barring some serious major event that isn't economic by definition, it's political or or something. I expect a year from now, the economy will be, uh, everybody will be agreeing that the economy is roaring and going ahead full speed ahead. And I think the stocks are going to surprise us too on the upside. I agree with all of that. Money supply, we, one of the things that we track when we're looking at this stuff is the money supply. And the money supply, the M2 version of that, increased dramatically during the pandemic. All that stimulus came in to prevent a depression. And it worked. Uh, it, it even prevented runaway inflation like what they're seeing in Europe. I know that sounds weird, but the fact that people knew that they had money actually let inflation remain calm. There was less desperation about it than what was seen in Turkey or in uh, even the UK. Um, so... Uh, by the way, Turkey's just a basket case. It is really not good to look at the economy of Turkey. We talk about Germany being in a recession. Turkey is, I, I, it's going to take decades to recover from what they're going through right now. They're, they're having, the lira well, valuation is just tanked. It's at record lows. And if they reelect Erdogan, he er Erdogan. probably will, Erdogan, he probably will continue with the same policies, which means it'll only get worse. Yes. He fights inflation by lowering interest rates, which caused their inflation rate to go triple digit. And that's in a, you know, we would think of Turkey as a industrialized nation. It may be still slightly emerging, but it's got an industrial society. They have skyscrapers in their main cities. I mean, this is, this is not a backwood, backwoods type country but they caused themselves to have a real banana republic currency issue and that had to do with bad decisions and the firing of three different equivalent of the treasury secretaries ministries of ministers of the treasury there before he got one that would agree to lower rates just basically do whatever he told them to do and uh, they're in a runoff election now which is unheard of nobody thought he would be in danger of losing six months ago but the inflation has really drived a wedge into his support driven driven drived yes <laughs> yes i i drived and and then drunk in it no and we're about out of time this is the personal wealth coach with jeff and jake mcclure uh this is the personal wealth coach and we do make uh other statements than really bad puns about songs uh we are uh, a a finance program as you would 
probably guessed from the personal wealth coach being our title. The personal wealth coach is not just the title of the program. It's also the name of an SEC registered investment advisory firm. All right. Well, does that mean that the SEC likes us? What would you say to that, sir? I would say that the SEC is a professionally dislikes almost everyone. Right. That is no implication of the SEC's approval just because we're registered with them. Why is the radio program and the firm named the same thing? Because we have to give this disclosure no matter what it is, and it's less disclosurable. It takes less time to do if it's just the same name. So we've been doing this program here uh, on this this station, 1400 AM in Temple, since 1996. We've been doing this a long time, and we haven't been paid for it ever. Uh, We also have not ever paid for it. So we've been doing this a long, long time, and the whole idea is education. We do advertise as a firm for on the studio, uh, on the channel, for this radio program. We don't actually advertise for our firm. We're advertising for the radio program. So what we're saying is that this is educational, and we do occasionally get business from it, but our purpose here is truly education. That being said, it's not advice. Advice would be if I knew who you were, if the other bald guy, Jeff, knew who you were, and we were able to have a private conversation with you about things in your best interest versus broadcasting to everyone. So we're going to be talking about education, which is why we do the program to begin with. So those two disclosures are really one. And having said that, do you deem to tell us another disclosure? Yes. The information we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. And he really can't get through the week without that. I think uh, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually give individually, uh, individually crafted and customized advice based on what people are trying to achieve that's generally and portfolio management and portfolio management. And that's generally for people with higher net worths, but we make exceptions occasionally. Um, and so you can contact us locally voicemail available during the weekend, but actual real live people, no phone tree during the week at two, five, four, nine, four, seven, 11, 11. You can reach that line tool free at one, eight hundred nine, one, four, seven, five, two, six. That's eight hundred nine, fourteen plan. And I think it's important to note that we're an independent fiduciary firm. We don't work for a corporation. We only work for our clients. Right. Exactly. Uh, you can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There's a contact form. You can use emails, Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. There are uh, recordings of the radio program going back years, newsletters going back decades, uh, and you can find us wherever podcasts are given Um, Thank you very much for listening on a nice Saturday morning. And until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.